We're very happy to have back half of our team. A little bit more than half arrived back last night. It's really encouraging. Most of them are here today. They flew all day yesterday, and the rest of our team coming back from Beirut will arrive. I think they expect to arrive this evening, so keep them in prayer. Before we begin our Bible study today, one of the things that I, I like to do from time to time is the New Testament teaches that when Christians gather on the Lord's Day, that one of the things that they should do is pray together. And it's hard in a larger setting to have the same intimacy and the personal sharing of prayer requests. But nevertheless, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, first of all, I urge that when you get together, he said, that entreaties and prayers and petitions be made on behalf of all men. So we're going to take a few moments for some corporate prayer. But before we do that, I want to mention a couple of things. First of all, we're, we're, we're encouraged as Christians to have a private prayer life. So I want to exhort and encourage all of you. If, if you haven't begun to develop the habit of a personal prayer life, it won't just come naturally. You have to, to pray that God will give you the strength to make it a priority. It's not just something where you go, I just pray throughout the day. Jesus said, go to your closet and pray, our Father who art in heaven, and just, just be in prayer that even if, if it's as small as just a few moments, that you, that you will develop, first of all, that habit, and then you can pray throughout the day. But then secondly, I want to encourage those of you that are married to begin to, if you're not already doing that, have prayer with your spouse. And guys, I'm going to ask and encourage you that you would be the leader in this. And for some of you, that's kind of new. Maybe you're like, I don't, that feels a little bit uncomfortable, but that's, that's a really biblical concept for families to be praying together. And so some of you men may feel like, well, I would feel like a hypocrite if I asked my wife to pray with me. And if, if you would feel like a hypocrite, then the answer is not to not pray, but the answer is what Jesus said, get the log out of your eye, just say to the Lord and to your spouse, say, listen, I know I haven't been where I should be, but, but I want to grow, and, and I want us to begin to have a habit of, of learning to pray together. And then I, I really hope that you've all found friends that you'll pray with, that you have some people that you can be vulnerable with, and that's one of the reasons that we encourage people to be in small groups. So if, if you're just attending on Sunday morning and you haven't yet connected with anybody, that's, that's really important that, that what Jesus had in mind in the New Testament is that Christians, that we, that we practice the one another's of the New Testament. We bear one another's burdens. We forgive one another. We encourage one another. We exhort one another. We forgive one another. But particularly, we pray for one another. So just let us know if you want to sign up for a small group. But even just if you meet somebody, you're just getting to know them. Hey, can we go out for coffee sometime? And just ask God to help you to have people that you can pray with. The Bible teaches that there's, there's an effective work of God in corporate prayer. Jesus talked about agreeing in Jesus' name on different things. So when we're praying with others, one of the things that's challenging is to stay focused because when someone else is praying, we're supposed to agree with them. We're supposed to be, yes, Lord, amen. That's, that, that's our prayer, Lord. So the Bible call, calls that being in, of one mind and in one accord. And so what I'd like to do is lead us in a, in a, in a time of corporate prayer and we're going to walk through just a couple of priorities in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul said to Timothy, I'm writing to teach you how to conduct yourself in the household of God. First of all, he said, I want Christians to pray. Entreaties and prayers and petitions be made for all men because God desires all men to be saved. And so one, one of God's chief priorities on planet Earth right now is not the economy, not ecology, 
It's the gospel. It's the advancement of the gospel. He said, pray for all men because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And all over the world, there's billions of people without Christ. There's people next door. There's loved ones we have. And God has chosen to use prayer as the means by which the Holy Spirit reaches our family, our children, our loved ones. And so we're going to pray for lost people. Also, we're going to pray for our country. Paul said to pray for your leaders so that as Christians, we may lead a tranquil life in godliness. And so I think what he had in mind there is there was a real possibility of persecution from the Romans on the church. And so we're fortunate at this point in America that we're able to worship in freedom, but there are many Christians in the world that can't. And those who just got back from Beirut, I'm sure are gonna share stories with us of of just um, the tremendous burden it is to not only be in a, a civil war in Syria, but also to have persecution. And many of them are risking their lives. And so we're told to pray for those who are in prison and to remember those who are suffering, but also to pray for our leadership because the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And God does judge nations. I think sometimes as Americans, we assume that we're a Christian nation and that God owes us his favor. He really doesn't. And there's a lot, of, a lot of corruption and sin in our country that someone once said, if God doesn't discipline us, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we should pray for our government, for our leaders, that God will put men and women in office who will make godly decisions. And those decisions may not be popular, but decisions that are based on God's truth. And, and of course, we want to pray for those in our church. Let's pray that the church in America experiences revival. There are so many people in American churches who <clears throat> probably aren't even believers. They just kind of attend church, but they don't have a personal relationship with Christ. And so we want to pray for God to revive the churches in America so that we might have an effective witness. And that would be our church too. There's no church that's arrived. But within the churches, think about things that we're going to pray for this morning. I want us to pray for marriages. There are so many people who are struggling in their marriage right now. And so if that includes you, be open, get help. Don't, don't just suffer silently until your marriage just disintegrates, but, but ask for prayer and, and come alongside one another. So, so we want to pray for marriages. We want to pray for people that are suffering and sick. Just this week, um, I visited with several people who have cancer. One of them, Pastor John and I got to visit a person who was um, in the past an atheist but has cancer, and as we went through the gospel with them, they had just a, a total openness of heart to hear the word of God and to, to listen to the gospel. And, and at the end, this person prayed and, and professed Jesus as their Messiah and asked Jesus to be their savior, and then boldly said, yeah, I know I'm, I'm gonna go to heaven now because, because Jesus is my Lord and, and I've asked him to save me. So be in prayer for for. For people that are sick, there's a lot of them in our church, a lot of families that are suffering. A lot of people have a wayward child or loved one. The Bible says if anyone strays from the truth and you turn them back, you've saved a soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. And then what about addictions? Probably all of us know people who have lost someone to opiates, alcohol, and drug abuse. There are many in our church who are in recovery, some who aren't in recovery, some who are just in the rages of, of an addictive uh, an addiction that's just ravaging them. And so God's, pow <clears throat> God's power is unleashed through prayer. 
So would you join me as we pray? I'm going to lead us in some things, and then I'm going to mention some things that I want you to pray just, just before the Lord, and then we'll close together. So let's bow. Heavenly Father, as, as your children, we come with one mind. We come as a local assembly of believers. We come to the living God who gave his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you, God, for your great mercy in Christ. Thank you that you love us even though we're sinful. Thank you that you have forgiven us because Christ took our place on that cross and and was punished and shed his blood so that you could extend mercy and grace and the free gift of salvation to us. We praise you for that and ask you to forgive us when we take our salvation for granted. Father, we come to confess our sins as a church. As Americans, we know that we are often lukewarm. We know that we are selfish. We know that we do not take the things of God as seriously as we should. Help us to fear the Lord, to love Christ, to live in the Spirit, to be in the Word and prayer, and to serve you and and give generously. And Father, we pray for our church, for our leaders, and and ask that you would bless our elders and pastors and all of the folks that are ministering to other people, our Sunday school teachers. Father, we pray for those who are coming back today from Beirut and those that have just arrived back, that you'll give them strength and rest and peace. We pray for the churches in Syria and Lebanon, that the gospel will continue to spread, particularly in the Muslim world. We're so thankful for the Spirit's power and what he's doing over there. And we pray for those who are suffering, that you will protect them and give them boldness, help them to be willing to die for Christ by faith, and enable us to do the same. Now I want you to take a moment and pray for the marriages in our church. Pray for your marriage if you're not married. Pray for others who are are struggling in their marriage, just for repentance, mercy, the healing of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the Lord's protection. Now, if you would, take a moment to pray for someone you know that's struggling with addiction. And even if you don't know anybody, just pray for many, many people that the Lord Jesus will set them free and that they would become followers of Christ and experience his power. Would you pray now for those who have lost loved ones? Some are in grief share, some are are in the midst of grieving. Just ask for the comfort of the Lord. Pray now for someone you know that is sick. Or struggling, maybe depression or anxiety or some illness. Ask the Lord in Jesus' name to bring healing and grace.
Father, we pray now for the advancement of the gospel. We pray that many more people will come to know the Lord. Thank you for the 13 that were baptized last week. May they grow strong in their faith and may they be fruitful and effective and be witnessing to others. Father, we pray that you will raise up more missionaries and leaders and for all those churches in this area that are preaching the gospel, we pray that you'll, you'll work in power. And Father, we pray for the children of this church, for every parent, that you will give them strength, that you will encourage them and, and give them wisdom and, and a plan, Lord, and, and faith to trust you and, and confidence that you're powerful and that you'll hear their prayers. And Father, we pray for those who have wandered from the faith, that you would just work in their hearts and bring them back, Lord, whether they're, they're Satan's persuaded them to believe lies or they've been deceived by sin. May you bring them back to the faith, Lord, and may all of us grow now as we hear the word of God. May the Lord Jesus use your word to grow us and strengthen us, to correct us and teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Numbers chapter 12. And if you don't, we have extra Bibles just raise your hand. I'm actually going to be looking at a passage that won't be on the PowerPoint this morning, so thank you, Rick. Um, so if you um, would like to have a Bible, just raise your hand or you need to borrow one. We're in the book of Numbers. We're looking at the Christian journey as a war and a worship time as we go through the wilderness of this life. Where the goal here as Christians is to finish. It's possible to quit Christianity. And it's a scary thought. And there are people who, who don't persevere to the end and they become disillusioned and they become overwhelmed by sins. And we're going to talk about that later. But one of the things we're going to look at this morning is one of what theologians and the church fathers called the seven deadly sins. And that's the sin of envy, the sin of jealousy. I want you to try to remember the first time you were jealous. Can you remember that? Was it? Was it over a girl or a guy? Probably, if we had really good memories, our first experience of jealousy was as children when one of our siblings got an advantage, got the toy, or maybe you were the firstborn and you enjoyed that solo and didn't care for doing a duet when that second one came along. Heard a guy say he was discouraged because he, he knew that his brother was the favorite because Mom asked him to pass out invitations for the surprise party. Why? Why does that mean he's the favorite? Well, we're twins. So, <laughs> some of you have learned early on that jealousy is ugly. And it's not enough to just, just say, well, just stop it. As with pride and, and anger and lust and, and these relational sins that we experience. What God does is he reveals to us our sin. And then he, then he gives us advice on how to change, and that's one of the, the beauties of Scripture is that God is merciful, but He's also truthful, and He's going to tell us like it is, and that's why some people don't like to hear the Bible preached, because it convicts them, it disturbs them. They don't like to be corrected, and yet the Bible says God's Word is profitable to teach and correct and, and reprove and, and set me on a path of training for righteousness. So let's begin in chapter 12, where we're going to find that Moses experienced a lot of external complaining from outsiders, but this time the jealousy came from within. It came from his own siblings. It's hard enough when unbelievers hurt us, 
but it's particularly difficult when it's our family, our loved ones, or other believers. And so all of us at times have, have experienced both probably being on the, the other side of jealousy or feeling jealousy. But one of the things that I think you'll note about jealousy is that when someone's jealous, they often are too ashamed to admit that that's the real issue. So they'll try to find other issues to sort of tear the person down when that's not even the real issue. And I think that's what was going on here. Start with me in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Now Miriam was his sister, Aaron his brother, and they both had prominent positions. Miriam was a chief prophetess. She was the one that led the worship in the Song of Moses when they crossed the Dead Sea. She was probably well-known all throughout the, the, the congregation of a million people. And of course, Aaron was the high priest. I mean, these two had a really great position in terms of, from a standpoint of prominence and, 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 and influence. But they became jealous. Now notice, initially it says they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. Now, it's hard to know what exactly is going on here. In the book of Exodus, it tells us that, that Moses married a Midianite by the name of Zipporah. So either, either she had another ethnic background that we don't know about, or some theologians suggest that Zipporah had died and this was another wife. And, and we can speculate, well, well why, is, why are they upset that he married a Cushite? Well, possibly because God had told his people to only marry among the Israelites, okay? But deep down, I don't even think that's the issue because look at the next verse. They were, they were complaining about who he married, but the next verse reveals what's really going on. And sometimes that's the, the, the hideousness of jealousy is that what comes out on the surface isn't even really the hard issue. Here's the hard issue. Look at verse two. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? You go, now, wait a minute, what, what, what's the issue here? Well, they were jealous of Moses. They did not like the fact that Moses was in this exalted position of being the chief spokesman for God. It ain't right. Now, I was doing some thinking this week on the relationship between covetousness and, and envy or jealousy. There's, the, the Ten Commandments do not say thou shalt not be envious. They say thou shalt not covet. Now, coveting, it seems to me, is when we're not content with what we have, but we want someone else's possessions, right? So the Bible says you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife. So, so what we learn as Christians is that even though we're sinners, we still have a disposition to be dissatisfied, but because God has given us a new nature, we have the Holy Spirit, we have to learn to deal with coveting when we want what we don't have, and Satan is a master offer of coveting. <clears throat> you might have a wonderful spouse who has plenty of great qualities, but he won't want you to focus on their assets. Just find one liability. Find one weakness in them. They talk too much, or they don't talk enough, or they're, they don't work hard enough, or they work too much. And then he'll bring someone else along and, and, and he'll tempt you to think, oh, if only I had a spouse like that. And it's such a dead end when we begin to be discontent with what we have. When in fact, Jesus said, a man's life doesn't consist of his possessions. So the author of Hebrews says, let your way of life be free from covetousness. 
Don't always want somebody else's stuff. If only I had that house, if only I had that job, if only I had that spouse. But it seems to me that envy isn't so much a, a discontentment with possessions, but it's with prominence. It's, it's with, with positions of favor. Why, why, do they get to, why do they get to be the chief and I have to be the Indian? Why do they have to be the, the queen bee and I have to be one of the drones? And so we all at some point or another have to deal with our jealousy. I'm ashamed to say that even as a pastor, I have to watch over my own heart. Years ago when I was a, a young pastor in Dallas, fresh out of seminary, I was helping to plant a church in Texas and there was, our church was called Community Bible Church and there was another church called Irving Bible Church. And we were both very similar, but that church was growing at a rapid pace and every time I hear about them, oh, they're, they're, they're building another building and they're growing and they're doing great and, and I began to feel jealous, like wait a minute, and so I actually went online and I listened to one of the pastor's sermons. I was like, wait a minute, he, he doesn't preach any better than me, right? And some of you are like, oh, you are so disgusting, pastor. You are so wicked. Don't even try it. You know, if, if you were up here, you, know, you get it, right? And God had to correct me, had to rebuke me. And I realized just how petty and, and, and prideful that was. In, in John chapter 3, I happened to be reading around that time, and it says the Pharisees came to John the Baptist and they said, did you know Jesus is making more disciples than you? He's baptizing more than you are, John. You had First Baptist Church, John, the biggest Baptist church in all of Judea, but now Jesus has Second Baptist. What do you think about that? And you know what? You know what John said? And the Lord just took that verse and spoke to my heart. John said, you know what? A man can receive nothing except is given to him from heaven. He must increase. I must decrease. And there it was. God, God spoke to me as a pastor. Who cares, Tom, whether you preach to two or 2,000? That's not yours to worry about. You just do what I want you to do. And if God gives you a big ministry, a man receives nothing except it's given to him from heaven. And I think we can all kind of draw out of that. Oh, if only I had their position, their prominence. It's always a dead end. Now, God's very gracious and so he's going to intervene, he's going to correct Moses. And I want to talk about that in a moment, but, but I want you to look at verse 3. This is really kind of striking. It says, now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now that's, that's a really cool thought until we go, wait, Moses wrote that. <laughs> are, are, are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to, you know, I want you to imagine that, let's say each year we voted for the most humble person of the church, and we had like a an annual award. Maybe you got a, a um, let me just get up to our passage here. Maybe you got a, a, a medal for that. You know, you're, you're the most humble person. But if you wear it, we would have to take it away from you. And so here, here we find that some scholars suggest that maybe one of the other scribes added this or maybe God inspired someone else. But I'm okay with Moses writing that because humility is not putting yourself down. Paul said, think soberly. Don't think more highly of yourself as God has allotted to each a measure of grace. And so Moses is a man who, who, who gives us a model of, of meekness and humility. This Hebrew word has the idea of, it's sometimes used of people who are afflicted and poor. He, he, he wasn't a person who was clamoring for attention, clamoring for prominence and position. And thank God for that, because this is the same thing that Jesus is known for. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls, because I am meek and humble, and you will find rest for your souls. And so we learn from Moses. 
And we pray that God will help us to be more humble and meek and, and not worry about comparing ourselves. But look at verse 4. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. And then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they both came forward, he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. Now, I think what God's saying here is this. Okay, so you're jealous because I have selected Moses to be my prophet of prominence. He's my chief spokesman. And you don't like it. So God begins by saying, listen, this is how I normally deal with prophets. Not directly face to face, but I'll give them a dream or vision. So as you're reading the Old Testament, you will see frequently one of the prophets say, and then I had this dream, or, or the Lord appeared to me in a vision. And then they share what God taught them. But Moses had such a close fellowship with God that God said, I don't do this with Moses. Not so with Moses, verse 7. Now look at this phrase. He's faithful in all of my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. So before we get into that for a moment, I just want to stop and, and, and ask you, how do you like to be corrected? How do you feel about that? Want to know how I feel? I hate it. I hate when people correct me, especially when they're right. <laughs> Thankfully, they so rarely are. <laughs> Being a sinner, we hate correction. The book of Proverbs says wise people will receive correction. And I want you to think about the fact that part of life is allowing God and others to speak into our lives. One of my mentors shared with me something very, very interesting. I watched a guy who had made some bad mistakes and a group of men confronted him about it. And he just made one excuse after the other. It became so clear that this was evident that he had a, a relational problem. But every time someone shared, he would make excuses. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. You misunderstood me. And later on, my mentor said to me, he goes, you know what, Tom? He said, people will respect you a lot more if you just say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong, and I'm really ashamed of it. Would you forgive me? I never forgot that. That really spoke to me, and it reminded me that we have to be open. And so I want to encourage you to consider that first and foremost, the one who loves us most and the one who wants to correct us is God. And the way that God corrects us is through his word. The Bible says God's word is profitable to correct us. And so we see God dealing very graciously. So, so sometimes we tell people, God loves you just as you are, but we need to be open to the idea that he doesn't love us in a way that he's going to leave us there. He loves us too much. He's going to say, I do love you, but I'm going to correct you. I'm going to deal with your attitudes. I'm going to deal with your actions. I'm going to come and, and speak to you about your sin. And then I'm going to invite you to repentance. And one of the joys is, as J.I. Packer once said, repentance is the ongoing privilege of the Christian. Instead of looking at that as like, I can't be the one that's wrong. That's just a natural thing that God's going to 
encourage me, but he's going to point out areas that Jesus is saying, now this is what I want you to work on. Read the book of Revelation chapters two and three. He highly commended the churches for their virtuous activities, but then he would say, but, but you've lost your first love, or, or you've become lukewarm, or your deeds aren't complete. And so, maybe this morning you've been dealing with jealousy, and God's coming along, and he's correcting you. He's speaking to you, and he's saying, I want you to repent of that. But maybe there's something else that's going on. And that's why some people, they don't want to come to church. I've on numerous occasions heard people say, I don't want to hear, I don't like Pastor Tom saying that stuff. And I'm going, hey, if I'm offensive because of my personality, I'm sorry. But if God's word is convicting you, as someone once said, this book will keep us from sin or sin will keep us from this book. And so don't look at it as a terrible thing at times to be like, God, you got me. Wow, you really, you exposed my heart, Lord. Because that's an act of love. That's God showing us our sin by his grace. But I want you to think about what he said about Moses. He, He said, now Moses, he's faithful. He didn't say, now look at Moses. He's fantastic. He didn't say, Moses, look at Moses. He's flashy. He's gifted. He's intelligent. He said he's faithful. And what's really encouraging about that is, is that it doesn't have anything to do with your ability. It's all about your availability to God. Anybody can be faithful. By God's grace, you can learn to be consistent. You don't have to worry about if you're Billy Graham Jr., right? But just to say, God, day by day, I want to learn to do the right things. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to I want to model to my children a consistency that says, hey, listen, I'm going to get it wrong at times, but I want to be faithful to the Lord. I want to be consistent. I I want to begin to develop habits and, 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 and have a lifestyle of dependability and loyalty to God. God doesn't reward us for our great things that we do. The Bible says it's required of stewards to be faithful. And so as a Christian, I hope that God encourages you this morning to say, you know, God doesn't, doesn't look at who's so prominent, who's so flashy, but, but you and I can just be obedient to him and seek to grow in grace. So the Lord, he deals with them. And he says, listen, I want you to think about Moses. And I love this verse. He says, with Moses I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. I want you to think about that. He beholds the form of the Lord. Remember, Moses had asked God earlier, he said, God, could I see your glory? And God said, Moses, I'm sorry. No one can look on me and live. God is so holy. He's so awesome. The Bible says he's a consuming fire who dwells in unapproachable light. He's not just granddad in the sky going, children, more candy. And Moses asked God, I want to see your glory. And yet the Lord, because of Moses' faithfulness, because of Moses' gentleness, his humility, and because Moses sought the Lord, the Bible says God is a rewarder of those who who diligently seek him. God graciously revealed himself to Moses in a very precious way. If you remember, he came to him and he he hit him in the cleft of a rock, and as he passed by, he gave the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. He said, the Lord, the Lord God, slow to anger, full of compassion, abounding in loving kindness toward all who fear him. And you remember what happened to Moses? After that experience, his face began to glow because he had beheld the glory of the Lord. 
But you know what's awesome for us as Christians? We live in a time where every one of us, in a certain way, can have that same experience. It's not limited to Moses. Because the Bible says, we all with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 3, we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord. You see, when you became a Christian, God revealed Jesus to you. The Bible says the same God who caused light to shine out of darkness caused the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine in our hearts. It is a privilege to know Jesus and to have a relationship with him. And as Peter said, though we don't see him, we love him. And so sometimes our sins, when God disciplines us, we have to reap what we sowed. And so here God's going to give Miriam a brief but firm reproof for her sin. Verse 9 says, So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not on account of this sin in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Do you ever secretly kind of get glad when somebody you don't like has trouble? You're like, man, pastor, you're a sicko. No, I'm a sinner, and so are you. The book of Proverbs says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, lest the Lord is displeased with you. And so look at the compassion of Moses. He didn't say, teach her a lesson, but instead he prayed for her. He was compassionate. Isn't that what Jesus wants us to do? I had a neighbor this week. He got so angry at me, and, and I was like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. And finally he said, listen, I'm really sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. But you know what? In that interaction, sometimes it's really hard not to get angry back. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. And the reality is you're going to have people hurt you. And we're trying to learn as Christians, what are we supposed to do when people hurt us? Love them, pray for them, be merciful to them, and follow the example of the Lord Jesus, who even when people nailed him to the cross said, Father, forgive them. So, but the Lord's going to give her some discipline. Oh, I don't know what happened there, but we'll continue to read. <clears throat> so he says, Moses prayed for her, oh God, heal her, but the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, wouldn't she have bare her shame for seven days? Now, this was, this was something much more formal than an angry spitting contest, that, that in this culture, there were certain settings which it was actually a ceremonial thing to spit in someone's face. You, you, you can read about it in, in the book of Ruth. But if, if, a, if a daughter brought great shame and reproach or a son brought great shame and reproach on their father by doing something very disgraceful, that, that, that the father would literally spit in the child's face. Now, it wasn't a disowning, but it was a shaming, and then that child was to go away for a time and to reflect on their shame and, and, and the pain that they caused. And so God said, even if her father had done that, she would be shut up for seven days. So let her be outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So notice the mercy and gentleness of God. But yet I wonder what was going through her mind for those seven days. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people didn't move until Miriam was received again. I can probably assure you that Miriam was a very different woman when she came back. You know what the psalmist said? 
He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, Lord, I keep your word. And it's really actually a blessing in disguise that God doesn't just allow us to persist in our sins, that he comes and he corrects us. The Bible says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, that we might share in his holiness. And so I want to encourage you this morning as, as we see God's gentle dealing with Moses, that we get into the habit of recognizing that this is part of being a Christian, that God our Father is parenting us, and part of that process is that he loves us and he corrects us, and that we learn to have a posture of, of submission and humility and say, yes, Lord, you're right, and, and, I, and I want you to help me to change, and that we have that posture with others as we grow together as Christians. And so we learn the importance of repentance. I love how Aaron responded, Lord, I beg you, don't account this sin to us. He just flat out confessed it. That's what confession is. It's just telling on yourself. It's saying the same thing. It's agreeing with God. Yes, I messed up. I lusted. I was proud. I was ignorant. I was lazy. I was foolish. I wasted my money. I've been disobedient. But Lord, I thank you that there's mercy with you. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and abundantly pardon. So I think this morning we can all say, wow, there's always areas that, that God's dealing with us and, and we're, we're, we're quick to put the elbow out and say, I hope so-and-so heard this and God's going, no, I'm not, I'm not dealing with them right now, I'm dealing with you. And so what a blessing it is to have a faithful God who comes alongside us. But this morning as we close, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3 as we, as we end because the author of Hebrews was very moved by that story. He was so moved by the faithfulness of Moses and he was so concerned for the Christians in his setting that he, that he refers to this passage in Hebrews chapter 3 in a very personal and, and timely way using the illustration of the faithfulness of Moses. Now, here's the setting. The setting was that whoever these recipients of this letter were, were Jew, probably Jewish converts who had left Judaism to identify with Messianic Christians, and they were being persecuted for that. And Jesus warned about people who, who will receive the word joyfully. Oh, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But he said when persecution comes, they fall away. And so what was happening is that these people who had professed Christ were realizing that it's harder to follow Christ than maybe they had thought. And so some of them were on the verge of, of departing. Some of them had already stopped going to church. The author said, don't forsake assembling with other Christians. And so what we see here is, is, is we find instructions, first of all, to our own hearts, that when we feel the temptations to wander, that we recognize just how dangerous that is. There's not a single one of us here that does not have the potential of walking away from God. And we need to carefully encourage one another to persevere to the end. So the author takes that, that, that story of Moses. He says, hey, you know how Moses was faithful over his house? Think about how Jesus is faithful over his house and he's calling you and me. Now listen, he's calling you and me to hold fast and keep following him. Well, why would anybody stop doing that? Why would anybody stop going to church? Stop reading their Bible? Why would anybody leave their spouse for someone else? 
Why would anybody who used to be on fire for God turn their back? And the answer is because of the deceitfulness of sin. And the solution is first of all vertical, to seek Christ. But it's also horizontal, to seek to help one another to continue to walk with the Lord. We're in the wilderness. We're not in heaven yet. And so let's look at this passage as we close. The author says in verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren and partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's what I want you to do. Think about Jesus right now. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Obviously, the Jews had great regard for Moses. But, but the author's here saying, listen, Moses was good, but Jesus is far better. He says, Moses was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in his house. Or Jesus was faithful as Moses was. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is far more glorious than Moses. Just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now notice how the author picks up on this Moses passage. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were spoken later. Today, we're hearing about Moses. He was faithful, and it's a testimony to us. But today, we need to hear this, that Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. But look what it says. If we hold our firm confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, what does he mean by that? Does he mean it's possible to lose our salvation? Absolutely not. If you're a Christian, you'll never lose your salvation. Those whom God justified, he's already glorified. He that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. Nevertheless, the tension is this. If you abandon your faith and you turn away from Christ and you permanently become an apostate, and you don't lose your salvation. You never were a Christian. Because the mark of being a believer is to continue to believe the gospel. Theologians call this the perseverance of the saints. God is at work in us, but we don't go, so I don't have to worry. I got my hell insurance. So what do we do? Well, we're honest with one another. And this is where we'll close. And this is a great reason why we need relationships with other Christians. Look at verse 12. So having looked at the faithfulness of Moses, he says, take care, brethren. These are Christians, professing believers. Lest there be in any one of you, Tom, an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Is that possible? Could I just walk away from my faith? Well, how do I make sure that, that this evil, unbelieving heart doesn't, doesn't, doesn't gradually well up within me and I, and I turn away and I go, I don't, I don't believe that stuff anymore. Well, let me start by saying this. This doesn't happen overnight. You don't walk close to Jesus on Monday and turn away from him on Tuesday. It's subtle, it's gradual, and it's dangerous. And you don't even see it coming at times. But one of the things that causes it is when we drift 
from community with other Christians. We stop going to church. We stop reading the Bible. We stop wanting to be around Christians. So here's the encouraging exhortation. Look at verse 13. It says, encourage one another. Encourage one another. How's it going, man? Hey, listen, I'm struggling. I need you to pray for me. I'm mad. I'm sad. I feel had. I'm mad at God. I'm mad at others. Encourage one another. Well, how often do I do it? Daily. As long as it's still called today. Well, why? And here it is. Lest any one of you be hardened. Now, here it is. By the deceitfulness of sin. As we close this morning, I want to invite you to pray for our church. Pray for me. Pray for all of us as leaders, as Christians, as as husbands, as parents. Any one of us has the potential of falling by the wayside. And I suspect that every one of you knows somebody that used to be a part of this fellowship that's kind of lost their way. And I want to encourage you to be in prayer for them and to do everything you can to try to bring them back. We can't all go after everybody, but each one of us can go after somebody. One of those 90 and 9. One of the things that we learn as disciples of Christ is to pray for others, particularly those who are new in the faith, who have made a a new profession. And I'll tell you this as a parent, the first time your kid says, I don't know whether I believe what you believe. Make sure this passage is in the back of your mind. Make sure that it's not an intellectual issue, but it's really a volitional issue. And this morning, if you've been dabbling in the deceitfulness of sin, maybe, maybe you're on the verge of an affair, or maybe, maybe you've been living a, a double life, or you're lying, or, 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 or you flat out know that you're away from God, and, and you're beginning to be comfortable with that, I plead with you to ask God's mercy to change your heart and to bring you back to the foot of the cross and to pray that you will be freed from the bondage and deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray that as a church we can encourage each other We're all in in this thing together. It's a hospital. We're fellow strugglers. But let's deal with our pride, our envy, our jealousy, our sin. And let's ask God as a church to make an impact for Christ and help us until the Lord returns to be faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you love us and you speak right to our hearts through the word. And we want to pray today for all of us that you will protect us from temptation, protect us from from discouragement, protect us from envy, pride, sexual sin, addictions. Lord, hypocrisy, laziness, just protect us, Lord, and help us to be a real encouragement to one another. Thank you, Jesus, that you were faithful to the end and you died for us and you pray for us and you keep us. And so we rest in you but we watch and pray. We pray for every one of our children to to know the Lord and walk with you. We pray for every marriage that you'll strengthen them. And for those who are broken and struggling today, may they find rest and freedom in repentance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 13 and 14, so you can read ahead for homework.